BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Tuesday morning after a characteristically wild night, but maybe uh, a little wilder than expected, even by the new Trumpian standards. We'll have so much to talk about with uh, Sam Nunberg, former Trump campaign official, and uh, just a crazy series of interviews uh, that that transpired over the last uh, 24 hours of, of bringing that down with our great guests and my friends, such as Peter Ogburn. Good morning. Oh, hi, Sabrina. How are you? I- I'm well. Who knows? Sam Nunberg could show up on this show today. I mean, he was everywhere else yesterday, just randomly calling in. He was- Although I have to say. I would imagine his hangover this morning is not great. <laughs> Probably not great. We'll have a little more on that potential hangover, too. Uh, Ray Rogers, of course, and Monty Kanzler, also part of our great team here at uh, Bill Press. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Yesterday, we talked all about the Oscar winners. Did you watch the Oscars? You know, I didn't. The Academy Awards, Sabrina. Oh, man, it's okay. I avoided it, and it's on my DVR, but let the spoilers begin. So you didn't watch it. I won't spoil anything. Okay. I'm just saying, if you didn't watch it, you were not alone. Okay. They actually released the numbers of how many people watched the Oscars on Sunday night. Here's the thing. Not a lot of people. I mean, actually, let me put it this way. It's still a lot of people, right? But it was an all-time low Ooh. for Oscars. It dropped 20% from last year, where they had 26.5 million viewers. Last uh, uh, or Sunday night, they only had 19%. So, huh. I will say, I haven't seen all of the movies or many of them, but I was I think I've just been underwhelmed in general. I Bye. think that's fair. This was a weird. This was just like a weird year. I yeah. think. So it, it is easily the least watched Oscars in history. The previous least watched Oscars was in 2008, which had five million more viewers than the one on Sunday night. It, I, I'm kind of dumbfounded it was that low. Right. Uh, but 
It is what it is. It's Trump's America. The Hollywood liberal elite is it's, officially irrelevant. Yeah, there you go. There, there you go. Uh, I think we can all agree that this Martin Shkreli character. Oh, boy. Not a fan, right? No, no, not many people are. Not a fan. I haven't well, heard that name in a little while. but Well, yesterday he was back in the news yeah. because a judge authorized the federal government to seize some of his property because he has to come up with $7.36 million that he owes the government. Now, he says he might not have that money on hand. So the judge said, if you don't have that money on hand, we get to take your property, including the infamous Wu-Tang album. Remember, oh, you remember this? Wu-Tang released the, one copy of an album that they did. They did one, one single <laughs> CD, one copy of an album that they did, and it was bought by... Martin Shkreli. Oh, my gosh. And it was bought for like a million dollars. right? Yeah, he, he spent more than a million dollars on the one-of-a-kind Wu-Tang album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. He also has a Picasso painting. I feel painting. like this is like a Marco Rubio scenario where if you actually asked him to name any of the Wu-Tang Clan, he wouldn't be able to yeah, do no, it. No, no, absolutely But he would not. talk about how he listens to But I to love them. the Wu-Tang Clan, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, he owns a, a Picasso painting. He has shares in Vieira Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and he has uh, $5 million in an E-Trade account. And the judge yesterday said, look, if you can't pay us actual money, we're going to take that stuff. Frankly, look, this guy is like once-in-a-generation villain, right? So I'm glad to see he's finally getting some comeuppance. I'm glad it finally caught up with him. Uh, maybe, finally, the Wu-Tang album will see the light of day, Sabrina. We may. We I may. Would, I would love to listen to it. Will Trump authorize its release? Will Trump authorize its release? <laughs> First the Democratic memo, then the Wu-Tang album. Perhaps. Perhaps. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, all right. We have more, as usual, to break down with Russia. Uh, That's the name of the game. But a little bit unusual compared with some of the other revelations that we have encountered over this tumultuous uh, year plus of the Trump administration. Sam Nunberg, not really a name that a lot of you would have heard uh, prior to yesterday. When no matter where you looked, he was he was there and somewhat similar to Carter Page. You have to wonder if he has retained a lawyer, because I think suffice it to say, any one of the interviews uh, could be described as ill-advised. Sam Numberg, who departed the Trump campaign fairly early on, uh, decided to take to the airwaves to discuss uh, his refusal to cooperate with special counsel Robert special counsel Robert Mueller and the, his investigation into Russian interference in the US election as well as potential collusion between the Trump campaign in Moscow and obstruction of justice by the president uh, and was defiant in in saying that he has no reason uh, to have to sit down and talk to the top federal investigator on one of the biggest uh, inquiries of our time why don't we take a listen to what he had to say to Katie Turr on MSNBC what do I have to spend 80 hours going over my emails? 
I don't know why I have to spend uh, why no, I have to talk to, do that? to investigators about this foreign adversary adversary of the U.S. that meddled in the election to benefit the campaign with which I was briefly associated. Uh, you know, if I want to clear my name and not incriminate myself, uh, I guess maybe I should talk to them, but that just seems like a waste of my time. Okay, so next time uh, you or your loved ones get charged with a crime and they say, well, you're going to have to stand trial... <laughs> For this, you say, why would I have to spend this eighty hours going through this stuff with you? Why should I have to do that? Uh, why should he? And and that's not all. But but if I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but right. like it, for those of you who aren't familiar with Sam Nunberg, the greatest Sam Nunberg story ever it came out of the David Bossy Cor Lewandowski book, where they said Trump would go to McDonald's, and one time they went to McDonald's. And Sam Nunberg had a special request order. He had he got like his burger with whatever extra cheese or whatever it was, right? One of those. And because he asked for a special order and it was taking longer, they just left him at the McDonald's. That's amazing. Trump and his team just got in the car and left his ass at McDonald's. That's who Sam Nunberg is. That is who Sam Nunberg is. Look, he 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 was obviously um, someone who was not an integral figure in the campaign in terms of its duration. But here's what we know about Robert Mueller. He is conducting a very thorough investigation. We have already seen at least four indictments of Trump campaign officials. Uh, that includes Paul Manafort, the former campaign chairman, and his deputy Rick Gates. It includes George Papadopoulos, former foreign policy advisor, who was the reason why the FBI started looking into Russian interference in the first place, because he bragged about how Moscow had dirt on Hillary Clinton and Michael Flynn, of course, the ousted national security advisor in the early days of the Trump administration. But the the totality of people who were affiliated with this campaign would reasonably be relevant to just looking into who knew what, when did they know it, who had contact with the Russians, who didn't, who heard maybe something about uh, contacts that had occurred between some of the campaign officials and the Russians, their emails, their call logs, their text messages. Any investigator would be seizing uh, all of that evidence. And it could be that Sam Nunberg is not part of any of these conversations. But as Peter said, if your family member is charged with a crime, reasonable to you know have to call forth all witnesses associated with that person to say, hey, look, we're just trying to get to the bottom of what happened. Any information you may have may shed light on uh, something that we either are, have a tip on or, or do not yet know. Now, Sam Nunberg decided that this wasn't enough to sit there and talk to Katie Turr about why he's not going to cooperate with um, Robert Mueller, even if he may be held in contempt of court. But then he went on uh, to talk to Jake Tapper. And uh, and then to Aaron Burnett, why don't we just have a little bit of a yeah, smattering? Yeah, let's just go through some of it. Let's here, just have a smattering of what he had to say. Yeah, here's where he was talking to Jake Tapper about why he's not going to cooperate. This is a little bit of a longer clip, but it just this is what happens when you let a guy like this just sort of ramble. Um, why are you refusing to cooperate with this subpoena? Because it's absolutely ridiculous what they requested from me. They requested, first of all, they sent me a subpoena where they asked me after November 1 of 2015... Did I communicate with Carter Page, Corey Lewandowski? I mean, I despise Corey. Why would I communicate with him? Hope Hicks, who was having an affair with Corey, 
oh and I, I would communicate. I should give them every email from November 1 of 2015 to perpetuity with Steve Bannon and, and Roger Stone? Why? Why do I have to give that to the, to the government? Well, I mean, because it's a special prosecutor and he's requesting information. Well, and he's, he's, you, he's, know, he's, he, you know, you know what, would, what would you say if it was a Democrat? Same thing. Yeah, I, I, ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer, right? Like he asked a dumb question. Why would I cooperate with a special counsel? Well, because he's a special counsel. Because he's a special counsel. I mean, because there is an investigation and you were affiliated with this campaign. And as I said, look, it could be that Sam Nunberg has nothing to do with anything. But first of all, just because you hate Corey Lewandowski doesn't mean you didn't communicate with him. Well, so that, that's It doesn't a... mean you were not CC'd on emails that also included Corey Lewandowski right. and other people who are not, again, they're not, these people have not all been implicated in wrongdoing. But it goes back to actually. What, let me just because I feel like sometimes we get caught up in like the who's who and yeah. and like what, what all yeah. the like insider baseball. George Papadopoulos is the, it was this is the you know sort of wild card where when Paul Manafort and Rick Gates were indicted by Robert Mueller and those were the first indictments, it was revealed that George Papadopoulos had already pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI and he was a short, a foreign policy advisor who was not a, a high ranking official in the campaign but and but he was someone who had communicated with the russians he was someone who had tried to facilitate a meeting between trump and vladimir putin the campaign says that he was doing some of this of his own volition that they did not direct him to do this but in the court documents you you have george papadopoulos who has now since last july been cooperating with the special counsel saying i did inform some of the campaign of my activities and that in included people like Steve Bannon who and Jeff Sessions who were CC'd on some of these emails or or some of their staffers were CC'd on some of these emails and so when you're because Sam Nunberg is suggesting there's this massive burden for him to turn over these emails it is not because there is a suggestion that he was there emailing with Russians himself but sometimes maybe someone else was, and he may have been part of that email chain. I mean, that it's, like, it's a very actually straightforward 101. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of break it down that way because I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand. You know, well, well how many people are they gonna let? Are they gonna talk to? There's obviously hundreds of people, thousands who are involved in a campaign. Um, but but this is what this is. I think where the special counsel's team is coming from in part. Let me ask you a question, uh, because you you have higher journalistic ethics than I do. Uh, that's for sure. But we have that on tape. At what point? Because it was it was wild yesterday. It was wild. Uh, it was around like two p.m. ish Eastern time that he went on with Katie Turr. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but it, 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 no, it, two p.m. It started around then. Yeah. yeah, and it just sort of spiraled into all these different media appearances he went everywhere 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 and at what point would you have to say okay this guy's not really saying anything he's just got an axe to grind because every appearance that he that he did that i saw he took a lot of shots at Corey lewandowski he mm -hmm. defended roger stone who he said was his mentor and like one of his good friends we'll get back to that too we'll get into that um, but he, 
unhinged is is a way that I would describe him. I mean, he had absolutely he, would, he didn't hold back at all. And at one point, I was wondering to myself, why? Why so, is he like this? Why so is he doing this? He's it's like Carter Page, right? Like right. Chris Hayes once asked him, "You're either completely innocent of all of the crimes that are being right surrounding you, or you're or you are the dumbest yeah. man alive." He's like, "You're either reckless or like, yeah, <laughs> or, 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 or and I and I hope it's you know what you yeah. know, like, and it's, it's the same not going to get you in trouble." So I would say this. I would say that at some point you're thinking this person is unhinged, uh, off on a, a tirade. And uh, do we keep calling him back to say more of the same? My my reason for thinking that it was appropriate and journalistically interesting in this case is because, well, one, this is more on him. Now, if he is not consulting with his lawyer, if he doesn't even have a lawyer, um, and he's but an He says he does. He says he, he, says he, does. he has a lawyer. If he is not listening to the counsel of his lawyer or he has a terrible lawyer who doesn't see why this is all you know, extremely reckless to, to to use borrowers from Chris Hayes, that's on him. Um, I think the special counsel's team is happy to see him sitting there uh, with these series of interviews because it gives them some insight. Uh, it, it, they have sat down with him in the past. They, they have, also, to be clear, he has sat down with the special counsel and his team, and now he's been subpoenaed before a grand jury. And, and frankly, that within of itself is important. Special counsel's team would not subpoena someone before a grand jury just to sit and have a casual conversation. It means that there was something that he said when he spoke with investigators that gave them reason to call him back. Um, and so so that's important. Uh, it's not like they're just, hey, come back. You know, we want to have a, we want to have a chat. We really enjoyed that. The, the multiple hours that we spoke with you earlier, he may have said something that was a new lead or he may have said something contradictory to what they've heard from others. But one more thing before yeah, yeah. I the other reason why I think it was journalistically um, interesting is because the more he said in some of these interviews, the more he contradicted himself. And so there's an opportunity for follow up by other people who then have a, who are then sitting down with him to say, OK, hold on. Because you told Katie Turr this, right? Which contradicts what you said previously. Um, so so let's talk about that for a second. Try and reconcile what you said to her versus what you said in the past. Then he may be contradicting himself yet again. And then it leads to other questions, notably, uh, which hasn't gotten as much coverage as just the insanity of it all. Uh, him saying that Trump knew about that infamous meeting at Trump Tower... In advance, the one where Paul Manafort and Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner sat down with That's the, big news. with the Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya. That whole meeting was set up on the pretense of the Russians offering tr- the Trump campaign, specifically Donald Trump Jr., uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton. And they were they told Donald Trump Jr. that there was an effort by the Russian government to aid their father's campaign. And he said, and I quote, if it's what you say, I love it. Because he's an idiot and didn't realize that one day those emails may come out. Also, you're not supposed to actually collude with the foreign adversary. That I mean, that was basically like intent to collude. Uh, so, so in any case, by the way, by the way, but so, that that's kind of like an interesting thing that came out of it, right? Now, I don't know. I mean, I got lost track of some of these. But if I was to say one of the later interviewers, I would say, hold on. Yeah. You said two hours ago that Trump knew about this meeting in advance. 
give us more yeah. because that is a that, that is a stunning revelation and wildly contradictory to what the White House has said this entire time. He actually, I just want to play this this one clip. Trump may have very well done something during the election with the Russians. If he did that, you know what? It's inexcusable. That's like that's news. Yeah. That's news. They, and, and he also went on and he said that, he, like, Carter Page colluded with the Russians. Like, he was naming names he, and saying what they did. And he, there was another point where he said slightly differently to what you just played. Oh, yeah, they may have something on Trump, meaning the yeah. special counsel. Now, look, if, and then if the special counsel's team is watching that, they're thinking, okay, what does he think we have? Because it means there's something potentially to be had, right? So then that invites other questions. If you're an investigator, you would go back to that interview and you would say, you said we might have something. What, what, do, you, what do you think it is that we have? Now, he might be, if he was someone who's smart and was sitting in, uh, sitting in front of the special counsel's team, he would probably say, no, I don't know. I, I don't know that, he, that there is anything to be had. I was just... I, answering in the hypothetical that there's an investigation maybe you guys have something but you know that invites a follow-up which is is there something you think that you that, that we might have like that there's reason for us to have had so look there's there's so much i think that there is to parse in the from these interviews um and i would just say that you know is he are we gonna at some point sure are we is he gonna be back tomorrow um or today um Maybe, maybe not, but I, I think that he's someone who certainly um, offered some very, very stunning insights into the dynamics within the campaign and how these people see the investigation where they're moving increasingly to distance themselves from it. Um, but also, I think, being incentivized to to come forth and provide information because they're realizing quickly, and I think that was also the subtext of this entire Nunberg um day of fun that there's the subtext is also it's probably better to for all his defiance to actually go forth and cooperate because you know that way you can at least save yourself and and lo and behold by the end of the night he said he will cooperate it, it was <clears throat> kind of fascinating to watch the whole thing play out right mm-hmm. because for whatever reason it was, and Aaron Burnett said she smelled alcohol on his breath. Wait, he, we, ha- he, we have to play. He might have been on a bender, right, for all I know, right? He, he he could have just totally been. I mean, I can't imagine the hangover he might have this morning. But she even said to him. I'm not going to cooperate. Oh, wait, no, no. Here's the other clip where, where I, I played the wrong. Oh, that we should always play that, too. Yeah. Well, she, she asked him, or she says straight up, she smells alcohol uh, on his breath. Talking to you, yeah. I have smelled alcohol on your breath. Well, I, I have not had a drink. You haven't had a drink, so that's no. not... No. So I, I just, because it is the talk out there, again, I know it's awkward, let me just get give you the questions well, you can uh, categorically answer that. Re- no, nope, you categor- haven't had a drink answer, today? My answer is no, I have not. Anything else? No. 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 Besides my meds. Oh. Okay. Antidepressants. By the way, okay? if, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this... Talking to you... Yeah. I have smelled alcohol on your breath. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. But like, for- I hope you've clipped and saved that little gem. Oh, do you know I have? Yeah. So, like, for whatever reason, right? He, yeah. it, it, my takeaway was this is a guy that has reached his breaking point. For whatever reason. Yeah. Right? Whether he was on a bender or whether he's been carrying around the stress of working for a. a a guy like Donald Trump for so long that it finally just cracked him or whether or not he's been carrying some guilt or whether or not 
he's just tired of the harassment or perceived harassment from Robert Mueller, right? Whatever it is, it looked like he hit his breaking point right. yesterday. And I'm not saying he had a full-on breakdown on national television, yeah. but he sort of had a breakdown on national television. Uh, yeah, so look, I think, I think ultimately, you know, th- this is something unlike anything we've seen before, and that's been the common denominator here. Everyone is trying to figure out By the how... Way, how many times have you said that in the last year? <laughs> exactly. Last year, I mean, since the launch of Trump's right, campaign. Right. But it, but it, it, with Russia in particular, we're all just in uncharted territory. I mean, we are with everything, but I think because this has to do with an investigation of such a significant scale, I think everyone's figuring out how to digest some of the revelations, but also how to deal with some of these people who, many of whom have no background in politics, many of whom have very colorful or unorthodox pasts, and and which some at times intersect with what they were tasked with doing or are currently tasked with doing. Um, and so it's just, there's so much to navigate. And I think with someone like Sam Nunberg, you, you very much saw people trying to decipher what to do with him. I mean, you know, and it goes back to the idea of some of these people may not have been high-ranking officials of the campaign, but they were there. And something, um, something there, there has had happened with respect to Russia that, again, we still don't know the extent to which there was collusion and who was involved, but it, it's something that cannot be ignored by the media. And so anytime you have your hands on someone who is even periphery to it, I think there's an... And there's an interest in just getting a feel for who knew what and when. Um, obviously, at some point, when someone is going off the rails you, and you don't you don't know what to do, um, that goes back to the to the umpteenth time where we say, "What is happening?" I mean, we've yeah. never we've never seen anything like it. But there'll be plenty more to break down uh, on the Russia front. I do think, of course, you know some of the salacious things he was saying about other people in the campaign, Hope Hicks and Corey Lewandowski making derogatory comments about Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary. I mean, that's all unnecessary. Yeah, that's and, all just gossip. And that's gossip, and that's not, uh, there's nothing, I think, that's that's journalistically um, of interest. I mean, it's more of interest for gossip uh, blogs and, 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 and in the rumor mills. But, but I also think, I mean, if it does shed light on anything, even those um, very off-color remarks that he made, I think it 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 does show you that this was, you know, not just a highly dysfunctional campaign, which we already knew, but that there was a lot of bitterness and there was a lot of animosity, and that is dis- that is distinctive distinctive for any for any campaign or any White House. Um, well, but it's a spe- it's especially indicative of like how Trump does things, and it, of how and that's what I was going to say, and it's especially indicative of how Trump does things and the tone that is set from the top. If the boss be- speaks and that way or behaves in that way or or, or is petty then, then then it enables the people below him to be to be very much the same but also what it does is it paves the way for no real sense of loyalty and i think that's why the special counsel's team has also been able to turn over uh to turn some witnesses not just because they he has other you know charges against them like money laundering and uh, tax evasion, uh, for which which is just a kind of classic way 
of of getting someone to cooperate with with an unrelated investigation is well you know I've found all this so I could charge you with ten counts of this unless you want to come forth and re- re- strike a plea deal but also there's not really a lot of incentive for some of these people to be loyal to one another and so I, because there is all of this like lingering bitterness and pettiness and so you what has been kind of remarkable about that remarkable about that is they're very much inclined to say well screw you I'm I'm taking this yeah. guy down yeah. um, he says he didn't know anything about this. I know otherwise, and I'm going to go and I'm going to tell the FBI. So, I just have to point out that uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump has not tweeted yet this morning. You think something's wrong? Well, I don't know. I mean, I was anticipating a rage, a couple of rage tweets this morning about the Nunberg stuff, but I, I mean, I don't know. I would I, imagine he's got something to say about it. A witch hunt. Witch hunt. <laughs> he might all just all capital. All caps. Witch hunt. I also think one thing that I just want to repeat is. Um, well, here's it was, and this is a story that kind of was was a little bit overlooked in the course of all this. Because oftentimes, we what we do overlook and talk about this investigation is what has actually happened to counter Russian interference in the election. And one of the headlines from the New York Times this week: the State Department was granted 120 million dollars to fight Russian meddling. It has spent zero. Um, and that Yay, is all right. That is in addition to the Wonderful. fact that. Trump still has not enforced the sanctions that were overwhelmingly passed by Congress last year on a rare bipartisan basis as retaliation for Russian meddling in the U.S. election. He moved in January to delay the implementation of those sanctions. Um, And last week, the NSA chief, Mike Rogers, testified before Congress that he has not been granted the authority from Trump to disrupt Russian cyber attacks at the source, um, and those those attacks being designed to interfere with uh, democracy here in the U.S., potentially this November's midterm elections. By the way, while, while we're talking about that, one of the other stories that got completely swallowed up yesterday is this New Yorker story on the second dossier oh. uh uh, by Christopher Steele, the man who did the the first dossier, mm-hmm. and and among many different things in there, was that Mitt Romney was going to be Secretary of State, but it was blocked by Russia. Russia said they didn't want they didn't want Mitt Romney to be Secretary of State, and so it was it was stopped. I'm reading directly from the Hill, Russia says it stopped former or Russia yeah Russia says it stopped former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney from becoming Trump's pre- Secretary of State, according to the New Yorker. Uh, in a report about Christopher Steele, <clears throat> the magazine says former British spy authored a separate dossier with a senior Russian official as its source. Uh, that source said individuals inside Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs claim to have stopped Romney from becoming the head of the State Department. So it's no wonder we're not spending all that money to try and uh, stop Russia from meddling and how things get done over here. Well, and you know Rex Tillerson's ties to Russia were were well known at the time of his confirmation sure. hearing. Mitt Romney infamously said in 2012 that Russia was uh, the country's number one geopolitical foe. Um, so, <laughs> well, well, well. What a time to be alive. Uh, well, well, there's so much more, honestly, to break down and, and not just on the Sam Nunberg and the Russia stuff, but in general, it's been, even by Trump standards, an unusually chaotic couple of weeks. I know we keep saying this, <laughs> but last week and, and then going into trickling into this week, I just feel like things have u- uniquely gone off the rails. And I think Daniel Lippman will be joining us to break down that 
and a lot more after this uh, break. So stay tuned and stay with us here at the Bill Press Show. We'll be back with you This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill this morning. And joining us now in studio is Daniel Lipman, political reporter and co-author of Playbook, uh, which obviously uh, many of us read and gets us going in the morning with all of the latest from Washington and beyond. Daniel, good morning. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. me. Uh, yes, we're happy to have you here um, on yet another chaotic uh, moment in the Trump administration. And I was saying before the break that last week in some ways seemed uniquely chaotic, even though we seem to say that every week, um, because we're dealing with, you know, the fallout from Jared Kushner losing his security clearance, Pix is resigning. It's, it's, it's she decides to resign from the White House, and then Trump comes out seemingly out of nowhere and announces a twenty five percent tariff on steel imports and a ten percent tariff on aluminum imports, which sent the stock market into a downward spiral, kicked off fears of a potential trade war. This was a decision that bitterly divided the White House, where you had you know, some of his economic advisors like Gary Cohn saying, don't do this, and other people like Wilbur Ross, who incidentally has some ties to uh, the U.S. steel industry, being more supportive. <laughs> um, but Funny how that works. Funny how that works, prompting backlash from Republicans on Capitol Hill. So tell us a little bit about how this has played out um, and, and whether or not Republican opposition may thwart the president from enforcing this plan. So I think Trump doesn't want to be seen as backing down uh, from one of his signature policies. And he, uh, remember, you know, he's been talking about tariffs for uh, and trade wars for years. And so uh, for the last couple of decades, he's been suspicious of foreign trade. He always says, uh, you know, we're losing, you know, $500 billion to China when that's when he's referring to the trade deficit, when actually uh, a large trade deficit can indicate that you have a lot of trade going, you know, both ways, and so it's good for the economy uh, for a robust uh, world, you know, trading system to be happening. And so, uh, but the backlash has been amazing to watch. Uh, you had Paul Ryan's press team sending out emails about how the stock market was going down. Uh, and this is their, you know, fellow Republican leader in the White House, uh, and they see this as they could hurt them in the midterms if. Uh, the economy uh, takes a hit, uh, then voters would blame Trump and in turn Republicans who didn't, uh, who weren't able to stop it. So we'll probably see the tariffs getting measured down, but they're not going to go away completely. Uh, you know, you, you talk about some of the backlash from Republicans. I know we have um, Sarah Jeff Flake, uh, a pretty frequent Trump critic, um, and others, though, who spoke out. Um, why don't we take a listen to what they had to say? Nobody ever wins trade wars. Trade wars are only lost by all involved. By the way, that was a direct response to something that Trump had tweeted because he went on Twitter and said, quote, trade wars are good and easy to win. Uh, John Kennedy from Louisiana also weighed in on it. I would suggest that before everybody gets all lubed up that we wait and see the president's <laughs> actual directive <laughs> and his reasoning for it. Yeah, he did say that. And oh, also dear. Richard Shelby from Alabama. And by the way, Jeff Flake, who you mentioned, was like a, is, is a sort of a constant critic of Donald Trump. Uh, John Kennedy and and Richard Shelby are not. Close allies. Yeah, yeah, Richard Shelby weighed in on it as well. Once we get into the t tariff business, somebody else is going to get in it. 
So we've got to figure it out. And also, by the way, the NBC News has a has a, a report about sort of how this all came to be, that Donald Trump sort of outwardly decided, I want to have a trade war. I would like a trade war. So this was not like just some gaffe or a misunderstanding of what he was getting into. He just sort of wanted to enter into this. And I also I think he saw it as a way to shift the conversation from – you know, the Jared Kushner mm-hmm. business uh, yeah. and, you know, be seen as getting a win for uh, his voters in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. But what he doesn't realize is that, uh, you know, millions of Americans use uh, products with steel and mm-hmm. aluminum and they are uh, they would be hurt by higher prices. And then uh, producers of things like, uh, you know, bourbon in Kentucky and orange juice in Florida, okay. uh, you know, they are, you know, senator, uh, other countries are going to hit. Uh, those products with tariffs if uh, this trade war continues. Yes, and you know there are a lot of American manufacturers who actually do rely on steel imports. Now, obviously, there are some here in the U.S. Yes, who would benefit from this, but um, I think that in some ways, as you said, this is what he campaigned on. He of a much more protectionist uh, worldview, where he, he dubbed it "America First," uh, and and. Ra- railed against NAFTA uh, and free trade in general. I'm curious, though, because you have Republicans pushing back, but, you know, he, the president had also pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, the landmark 12-nation trade pact that was negotiated under Obama, and Paul Ryan is a big supporter of it, and they sort of just shrugged their shoulders and said, you know, it's his administration now. I mean, does this... Does this... fundamentally change Republican orthodoxy or is that, you know, in some ways I'm kind of interested in how um, the Republican Party will increasingly uh, move away from some of its most long-held positions because they have a leader who has decided to chart a different way forward and they haven't really been as forceful, I think, in pushing back. Um, They sort of picked, you know, they've been picking and choosing certain battles, but I don't think that that's enough to rein in someone like Trump. Yeah, I think they, uh, you know, the party is shifting in terms of a more nationalist uh, type party, uh, more populist. Uh, this is not the country club rich Republicans uh, party because those people are, you know, they, they like even open borders sometimes because, you know, if you have uh, housekeepers, you don't you want to make sure that there's enough people that are like, you know, uh, taking care of your household and, and not and you want labor costs down. And so when you have lots of. Uh, immigrants uh, getting let into the country, then that does that for lower wage jobs. And, you know, I think the Wall Street Journal, uh, they will continue to be a a voice of free trade orthodoxy. Uh, But if you have these mini Trumps who get elected uh, either this year uh, or in the future, uh, who did not uh, you know, they didn't go to the University of Chicago or, you know, they don't uh, pay attention to uh, what you know, heritage or AEI think about uh, trade issues or other economic issues, uh, then you could see this phenomenon last a while. Remember Steve Bannon, he talked about uh, how he wanted to raise taxes on the very rich. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that uh, most wealthy Republicans want to hear. Absolutely. And there Trump acquiesced to the Republican tax plan. Um, But I think on trade, he feels so uh, uniquely... uh, passionate about it and that's something that but I and I think he has now at least said that um if they do renegotiate NAFTA then he will 
maybe reconsider the these tariffs or the scale of these tariffs. Um, but we have to remember that, like the what some people forget is that these tariffs are being levied under a national security provision right. of the you know of like the laws that govern these things, um, and it's hard for uh, many people to argue that getting steel and aluminum from Canada is exactly a national security threat. Uh, the Canadians are not going to cut us off if we need aluminum in a, uh, a war. And so I think there are some Republicans that just want these tariffs targeted towards uh, steel imports coming from Russia and China mm-hmm. and that you know other countries uh, should be exempt. Like We're not getting steel from Iran, for example. And so... I think that, you know, and Europe is not a threat to America. And so it would just, uh, I think, and what Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin are arguing is that the fact that if we put these tariffs in, it is a danger to our national security by setting off a trade war. And Mm -hmm. so it's not, it's kind of the reverse of what Trump wanted in the first place. Absolutely. And you said, you know, in some ways, I mean, we, this came after, you know, 40, another 48 hours of, of chaos, specifically with respect to Jared Kushner. Uh, Hope Hicks, maybe a little less so in her case, but she did announce her departure after testifying for nine hours before congressional investigators on Russia. Now, she says it was unrelated, but of course, there are people who might be a little bit skeptical of some of the timing. But Jared Kushner in particular, having had his security clearance downgraded, dealing with uh, numerous reports about conflicts of interest, one of the most damning from The Washington Post, that at least four countries saw him as uh, a political um vulnerability to the Trump administration where they could they could take advantage of his also his business his business uh, ties his debt and this is naivete not having worked in politics before um what 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 is the current state of affairs in the White House we come back to this question a lot but uh, the last week or so um where do you think that left this particular White House in terms of where it stands yeah, I think uh, people feel like the president is isolated, that he is losing, uh, you know, people like Hope, uh, you know, he was close to and, you know, Rob Porter, uh, who he relied on and then General Kelly relied on. Uh, and Kelly seems to be in a weaker position than he used to be. Uh, and uh, Trump even mocks uh, Jared and Ivanka as like, what do they what do they do all day? You know, what have they accomplished? And so. I think the morale is pretty low in the uh, Trump White House, and uh, people feel like uh, you know it will just get worse. Uh, you know, eventually with the midterms, if it all goes well for Democrats, uh, you know that will be a body blow because then it will be much harder to get things done mm-hmm. uh, in the administration, and then uh, all eyes go to twenty twenty. So, how long can Jared Kushner sustain his role? Do you think? And I think he he can stay there as long as he wants. Like he's not, uh, he has said that, uh, or people close to him say that his work has not been interfered too much by uh, the you know lack of security clearance. He can still hold hold meetings. You know, you don't rely on tons of secret intel when you are trying to reform the government or uh, you know you're meeting with the Israeli and you know, Palestinian leaders. I think it was, uh, and but the Palestinians won't meet with. Uh, in America anymore after we uh, announced that we're moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which he, Trump might visit. Right. And uh, yeah, Trump having, having hosted uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, obviously with APAC this week, um, the, the Middle East uh, peace process once again uh, under the microscope. 
you as you mentioned, Trump made the decision to move the embassy, also recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, the decisions that were not were, that were met with a fair amount of controversy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how um, the Middle East peace process has been, I think, for how is it, one, how is, what have been the ramifications of Trump's decision, decisions, and what are the longer-term implications of the way in which he has so closely aligned himself with Netanyahu? Yeah, I think uh, in a, he talked with Netanyahu yesterday about how the relationship between U.S. and Israel has never been better, and that they're very you know, co- close allies. Uh, but we should remember a couple of years ago, Trump said he wanted to be a neutral arbiter uh, in the region to help move along the peace process. Uh, you know, and there's still a small chance for peace, but, uh, you know, in uh, Trump's time, but it doesn't seem like they've accomplished a lot in terms of moving the ball forward. There haven't been grand negotiations. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, you know, much progress. And so, uh, and Trump wanted a big win on this type of issue or any other uh, issue. And so he thought that uh, this could be a shining moment for him. But I think you know, almost any recent American president thinks that they can do something on this issue. And, you know, unless you have both sides, uh, you know, ready for peace and willing to make the hard choices, both, you know, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, then uh, Trump himself as being a master negotiator, you know, he really can't do that much. And so he probably doesn't, if Obama and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush couldn't make peace, we shouldn't expect Trump to do the same. Yes, and as you know, he had said he wanted to be a neutral arbiter, but uh, the Palestinians do not believe this administration is operating in good faith. Um, and so there are many who have argued that his uh, pair, the pair of decisions he made with respect to Jerusalem and uh, the embassy uh, have undermined the peace process uh, and contributed to what is already a very volatile situation in the Middle East. Um, but I wanted to switch gears because there's some other point that you've done, and I think that as much as we can continue to uh, shed light on the Me Too movement and, and sexual misconduct, um, we come back to this uh, now oh God, every other day because there's someone else who has been named. And you've done some reporting around this at Cato in particular. Can you uh, tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about what you found out? Sure. So the um, my colleague Maggie Severins and I, we did, uh, we've done a couple stories looking at harassment at the libertarian uh, think tank Cato, you know, which is very well known in, in this town. They have a lot of events. They have a lot of experts, uh, you know, millions of dollars in funding. And uh, we found that their former uh, found their co-founder and their president emeritus, their longtime leader, you know, he harassed uh, a number of female employees. And uh, yet he was still paid uh, more than four hundred thousand dollars in the last uh, five years uh, every year after he left Cato, uh, and that there was a number of settlements. And so just last week, we had the second uh, iteration of our story where uh, it was kind of an unusual uh, thing in that one of their board members, a guy named Preston Marshall, uh, who is heir to a huge uh, Koch brothers uh, minority shareholding, uh, his mother owns 16, is you know worth more than $16 billion dollars, uh, and so Preston uh, was on track to uh, you know, gain $8 billion in uh, inheritance. Uh, it, you know, we found that Preston uh, 
uh, was accused of domestic violence and arrested by the Houston police for uh, beating his wife. And so uh, that's something that no one had reported yet. Uh, but he still remains on the Cato board at the time when the libertarian movement is grappling and a lot of other movements are grappling with sexual harassment. And how has how how has Cato responded to your reporting? So they said that, uh, you know, they're suspending him uh, from all board activities, but he remains on the board and that uh, if he uh, is you know found guilty, then uh, he'll be expected to leave the board and if uh, not then uh you know they will look at a you know do a tough review about things but it uh they haven't had a uh a mandatory sexual harassment training uh you know since 2012 and you know a lot of organizations they say oh this is these trainings are mandatory and yet they're held like every 5 or 10 years when there's you know new employees who you know cycle through and never had one one of those trainings in fact it was only toward the end of last year in the post Harvey Weinstein era as we now would call it that congress uh, reinstated mandatory sexual harassment training or or instated it in the first place it was not actually something that was required of all lawmakers and all staff uh, although there was a lot of discussion and debate over reforming the process uh, for reporting sexual harassment on Capitol Hill um, which seems to have been somewhat forgotten. Has there been any movement in that regard? I think there's been you know, some stuff behind the scenes. Uh, you know, what I thought was interesting, I don't know if you saw the story, it was from Vox yesterday about how uh, a lot of congressional interns, these you know, young 20-somethings, they are required to sign NDAs uh, with uh, their, when, you know, when they do an internship on the Hill. Uh, and you know, when you sign an NDA, you think to yourself, I, you know, what can I say about uh, if something bad happens to me, if I'm harassed? Uh, and so and you usually think to yourself, like, that's very odd. You know, these kids are just, um, you know, sorting the mail and answering the phone. Like, why would they need to sign an NDA? And so uh, it feels like a step backwards, like for like with the moment that we're in. Right. When we talk about the Me Too movement and things that are being done like that feels like a step. Is this a new thing it's or is this something a, they, that I was... think it's a long standing? OK, oh, it's oh, not oh, a. Okay. Um, but still, I think right. those types of things should other... be looked at. And like, you know, do we shouldn't there be an exception uh, for uh, when you get harassed? Um, I think. But some people worry, you know, whether the Me Too movement has gone too far mm-hmm. and that it's implicating people, uh, you know, who are unfairly uh, targeted. We saw Ryan Lizza and there's a you know, staff writer from The New Yorker who was uh, fired after an allegation about that. But. CNN investigated that, and uh, they've kept him as a contributor. And we he, uh, find today from Vanity Fair that he is uh, actually doing freelance pieces for Rolling Stone, and you know, which checked into Ryan and found that uh, you know nothing uh, you know bad happened. So sometimes there's people who get swept up in it that might not uh, deserve that. Right, it's a very complex uh, issue to, to when you're trying to deal with the spectrum, and then. Also making sure that there is still due process. And but I think and I think with Congress, obviously, as you note, that's a place where the current system has been uniquely positioned against uh, women or, or accusers or those who feel, feel that they've been victims of some sort of harassment. And so I think there that might be the place where they there has been due process for for um, not for the <clears throat> victims but for the lawmakers. And so uh, in a way that in essence has enabled them to pay out these secret settlements and, and not and be able to move on while all of the accusers, as you know, they've either been subject to NDAs or 
or had to just quietly leave their jobs, uh, no questions asked. Um, you know, I want to ask you about, I have to ask you before, you know, we kind of wrap up here, what you think of Sam Nunberg, who <laughs> took to the airwaves, not once, not twice, but three, four, five, I, I, five times. I lost track, actually. At some point, there was a joke that he was like, on the weather channel um <laughs> uh, you know i because because you've you've had someone like carter page also sometimes engage in these ill-advised seemingly ill-advised interviews um what what happened and you you know and what 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 do you think was the most let me ask you this what to you is the most striking about what he had to say so uh you know we should remember with nunberg that his big mentor was uh, Roger Stone, is Roger mm-hmm. Stone. And so, you know, he has seen Roger get targeted by uh, Mueller in some extent, at least in the press. I don't know if Roger will get uh, charged with anything. And so you have to look in terms of Nanberg's behavior being related to uh, you know, kind of going out on a limb and, you know, trying to, you know, muddy up uh, Mueller and the special prosecutor and, and prevent him from looking at uh, Roger. Uh, which is you know an unsuccessful effort. And I think this uh, will his behavior on television will only antagonize both Trump and, and Mueller uh, because they'll view it as being a media stunt. And that you know uh, Nunberg, who a lot of us in the media have dealt with over the years uh, in pitching uh, stories uh, and you know different items. Uh, you know it's pretty sad to see that. Uh, you know, that uh, the media took advantage of Nunberg in some ways. And, like, if you have a person that uh, seems troubled, you shouldn't give him, uh, you know, more airtime when he was a hasn't even worked in, for Trump for um, almost three years. And so uh, I think the media used him and Nunberg used the media. And uh, Stone's quote was, all media is, uh, all press is good press. And I think Nunberg took that a little too far yesterday. <laughs> you can't take that too literally. Like if there's, uh, you know, then that just makes you look ridiculous. And just for context, because the Roger Stone piece is important. And as you note, uh, he's a mentor to Sam Nunberg. He is, Trump, although he did not have a formal role in the campaign, he is Trump's longest serving political advisor, Roger Stone. Um, and he's been hard to pin down on, you know, his... Um, conversations uh, or, or contacts with the Russians, but and WikiLeaks, yeah. but we, but but he is um, someone who has met and has had uh, communi- contacts with Julian Assange, the founder co-founder of WikiLeaks, which was the vehicle that was used to publish uh, the hacked emails of John Podesta from the Clinton campaign and the DNC. So um, to, one would suspect that the special counsel is interested <laughs> in what Sam Nunberg may have known about. Uh, Roger Stone's uh, contacts with WikiLeaks and and in, ter- in turn what Trump may have known um, because of their longstanding relationship. Um, so what do you think is going to be? I'm going to ask you because you, you you're the guy you, you you've given your role in playbook. What do you think is going to be the story that really drives this week? I know you can never really say, but <laughs> what what are what are we what should we look out for this week in particular? I think the uh, the continuing Republican pushback on these tariffs like that's going to. Uh, because this uh, is a you know economy-wide issue, uh, it's not just a thing that's affecting the steel industry, and so you know I'd keep my eye on that uh, in terms of does Trump reverse himself and how does he explain that, uh, and 
you know, whether he, you know, who wins, does Kerry Cohn leave the White House if uh, he loses his battle on this? Uh, or does he stay and look uh, chastened and uh, weaker than uh, before this war? Yeah, Gary Cohn, also someone who um, was very seriously considering leaving the White House in the aftermath of uh, Trump's remarks on Charlottesville. Uh, he is, of course, the uh, head of the National Economic Council under uh, Trump. Um, I mean, who's in and who's out, you never really know, I think. And what would Gary Cohn do after? Would he go back to, uh, I can't imagine him going back to Goldman Sachs. He might go to a private equity uh, firm or hedge fund, um, which would probably be a better workplace than uh, the Trump White House in terms of sanity. I do think the collective whiplash seems to be uh, one of the characteristics of those who, who have worked both on the campaign and, and the White House. Even Anthony Scaramucci was on their way of seeing the Morales at an all-time low. When the mooch has had enough, you know that there's trouble in the waters. Daniel Lipman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for uh, having me. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at DLipman and work at Politico. We'll be back after this break. Stay tuned. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, more chaos. Russia, 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 I often like to say. Um, you know, potential trade war. More resignations from the White House. Just a just a casual day in uh, Trump's America. Uh, we have a, a great group of guests, of course. We just had Daniel Lipman breaking down the latest, and we will soon have Adam Wolner. Um, and I'm here, also here, with some of my friends who are helping keep things running. That includes someone like Peter Ogburn. Hi there. Hi there, and Ray Rogers and Monty Cancer as well, making sure that I don't fall off the rails. Um, oh, you would never. I would never. Um, and and I think we have so much more to talk about. I mean, we 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 there's we still haven't even discussed uh, the continued efforts to reform the nation's gun laws in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting, or whatever happened to immigration reform. But first, this is the full court press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. You know, one of the things we often talked about when. Uh, when Barack Obama was president, was how quiet George W. Bush was. He never really came out and <clears throat> said anything derogatory about Barack Obama. He just sort of stayed in his lane and didn't, didn't say anything at all. Well, according to contributing editor for the National Journal, Tom DeFrank, former guest of the Bill Press Show, uh, he actually did have some things to say about not Barack Obama, but Donald Trump. He said that, uh, according to uh, uh, Tom DeFrank, George Bush said, quote, Without chiming in on the Trump critics, Bush is often heard to remark, unable to stifle his trademark smirk, quote, sort of makes me look pretty good, doesn't it? 
end quote. And that's all that W will say. Yeah, but like as he watches the Trump fiasco unfold, sort of makes me look pretty good. Infamously, while watching the, after sitting there and witnessing Trump's inauguration, reportedly turned to people and said, that was some weird shit. That was some weird ass. Yeah, yes. that was some weird ass. Yes. Uh, and, and none of the Bushes went to the Republican convention. Uh, right. Jeb Bush didn't go. W didn't go. So like H W didn't go. They they realize that Donald Trump is well. He also disparaged their family in yeah, yeah, very very stark terms. Exactly. How about some good news? Uh, homicides are down in Chicago. Remember when Donald Trump took office, he sort of talked about uh, how he was going to send in the military to Chicago. Uh, which never happened, and thankfully it looks like it won't have to happen because homicides are down by about 25% when you compare them to 2016 and 2017. It was the worst violence that the city had seen in about two decades, according to uh, the data that was kept by the Chicago Tribune. The number of people shot in 2018 is down 30% from the last two years. Uh, but as with homicides, shootings continue to outpace victims from 2012, 2013, and 2014. But it's good news. We'll take that. We'll take the good news. Right. Uh, one final story. This will be the last Oscar story that I do uh, for the season. We were going to move on. But you know about the EGOT, right? You know yeah. about the EGOT? Emmy, uh, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Tony, right. So there have been a couple of people who have won EGOTs in their career. But as of Sunday night... There is only one person who has gone for the double EGOT. Robert Lopez. He mm. won the he won an Oscar on Sunday night for the best original song from the song Remember Me from the movie Coco, the animated movie. Yeah. Did you see that? I heard it's great. I haven't seen it. It's not for me. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I didn't see it. I, I shouldn't say it's not for me. It just it doesn't appeal to me. He is the only person in the world to have ever gotten a double EGOT. There are currently 12 individuals who have won at least one EGOT. Mel Brooks, Rita Moreno, Whoopi Goldberg is one of them. But uh, Lopez, this is a guy who co-created the Book of Mormon and Avenue Q. He's won at least two of each, which is astounding. It's sort of like impossible to get one EGOT. He's got two. Yeah. Figure that out, Sabrina. Where's my EGOT? Uh... You can, you know, you got, you got a lot of life ahead of you. You got a lot of, you know, you can make it happen. I believe in you. Maybe this show will be the, the starting point. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back. Uh, lots more to break down um, in yet another wildly chaotic week uh, here in Trump world. Uh, we obviously have been talking a lot about Russia, a lot about Sam Nunberg. I think um, switching gears a little bit, of course, uh, would be pertinent to talk about uh, gun laws and the extent to which the um, your president is going to be able to broker a deal uh, that has eluded um, many of his predecessors, uh, certainly, I think, on one of the most politically contentious issues uh, before Washington. Uh, we've had this conversation time and again as to what is actually feasible when it comes to gun control. Um, if it didn't happen after Sandy Hook, is there any reason to believe it would happen now? 
Um, that's something that we could discuss along with a lot more with Adam Wolner, who is a reporter at, for the National Journal and here with us now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. I, I, I'm almost After listening. a crazy news day yesterday, <laughs> a day with which like, like all of us are yeah. asking ourselves, when was the last time we had a news day that crazy? But like we've asked ourselves that probably, you know. 300 times in the last year. Exactly. I was going to say, just another day in the life, right? Yeah, right. I know, another day in the life. (laughs) I know we have talked a lot about numbering, but I do still want to ask you because it's just so striking. It is. What was your impression of yesterday's event? Well, so it was funny. So I was actually not at my desk or by a a TV or a computer as this was going down yesterday. Um, I was actually in in the back of a of a cab, so I was just like following things on on my Twitter feed on my phone, and it was just like you know I was just refreshing constantly every ten seconds in these new. <laughs> just, yeah. It was something you know. It was like one minute he was on CNN, the next minute he was on MSNBC. Yeah. It was you just like couldn't keep up with what he was saying. It was I, I mean, just as a cable news moment, I can't like think of anything that's come uh, anywhere close to that. What to you was the most informative thing that he said? Well, well could, so one thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is, you know, obviously he he went he did this whole spiel where he was saying, I'm not going to cooperate with Mueller. I'm going to I'm going to rip up the subpoena. I'm going to do all this. But then he tells the AP at the end of the day, oh, by the way, I think I'm probably going to end up cooperating anyway. So I don't know if if he was he just putting on a show th- this whole time or was he did he kind of realize by the end of the day after he had been asking people literally on mm-hmm. air for legal advice, whether it was the hosts or or um, any other panelists they had. Maybe he, he came to his senses and realized, you know what, it's probably best for me to, to cooperate that, that with was this the, whole thing. That, to me, was the wildest part, is he would say, what do you think I should do? Right. Yeah, like, what do you to, think to I should do? various cable news anchors, right. what do you think well, I should yeah. do? Well, and that's... then Katie Turner's like, well, you you could be held in contempt, of course. Yeah. Right. I, that, yeah, I that's why with that with that first those first couple interviews where he was just phoning in to the anchors, I there was part of me that was thinking, maybe he doesn't realize this is on air. Maybe yeah. he thinks he's just like chatting with a chatting. reporter over the phone, <laughs> um, but but yeah, that was it, it was so insane, and um, especially not to be able to watch it in person, just seeing it like unfold on Twitter. I think it made it even more difficult to, to keep yeah, up. Yeah, it's the way we live now. Uh, but I, you know, we, we we discussed it a lot, and so I think you know, I, I almost wanted to kind of switch gears because there's so many mm-hmm. other stories that have, as usual, been overshadowed by the right. fact that we're dealing with constant chaos. Um, and there are a number of uh, issues facing Congress that um, that are almost being overlooked, maybe to their pleasure, great pleasure, because yeah. we, we can't seem to focus on any one thing. Um, I know one thing that you've kind of done some analysis of is this rewriting of Dodd-Frank. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the issues that Mitch McConnell has said is going to be a priority uh, for Republican for the Republicans who control both chambers. Um, so in the nation's capital, can you can you talk to us a little bit, especially because I know financial reform is is a very important issue to to the listeners here. Uh, what to expect? Yeah, so it's it's interesting, especially with you know immigration now has kind of taken a, a back seat, even as as we've passed the president's original deadline of of March fifth. Looks like they're just going to end up probably doing something with the spending bill later on uh, this month. Gun control, as usual, tough to find a path forward on that. Maybe there will be something on background checks. Who knows? So it's kind of cleared the, the Senate floor this week for this Dodd-Frank rewrite. And something that, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people have heard about much recently, yeah. you know, something that was passed in 2010 in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but essentially it would, you know, it, it's not a total gutting of that law, but but it would uh, would rewrite certain portions of that. 
And uh, it actually has a, a good amount of bipartisan support. There's 12 Democratic co-sponsors on this. And uh, n- perhaps not surprisingly, a lot of those red state Democrats, mm. a lot of those Senate Democrats running for reelection in states that President Trump carried in 2016. So some of those people, whether it's, you know, Joe Donnelly, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, John Tester, some of those folks that some Republicans, the Trump administration, were hoping they could get on board with tax reform. They were able to get get them on board with this Dodd-Frank rewrite. Um, but of course, there, there's uh, been quite a bit of opposition from the left, most notably Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown saying, hey, you know, it's only been 10 years since the financial crisis. Our, our, maybe we should be concerned that we're going to be repeating some of the same stakes, same mistakes that we made back then by by loosening some of these these regulations. But uh, but but it seems like most Republicans are going to be on board with this. Uh, about a dozen Democrats are going to be on board. And they think that, you know, it's it's going to leave in place still some of the uh, the, the big regulation on, on some of the, the major uh, banks and financial institutions. But it's going to kind of what they hope will, will free up some of the more mid, mid-level institutions. Mm. I, and I think it's interesting because it, a lot of the conversation last week, as you noted, was dominated by guns mm-hmm. in the preceding couple months. It was it was immigration. Um, and these issues appear to have somewhat moved to the back burner. Although on guns, as you as you noted, there might be something on background checks. Uh, is there any sense of timing for a vote? Um, you know, the president convened this big meeting, of course, televised right. as was his uh, discussion on immigration with bipartisan uh, senators, and there was this big show of you know what he would and wouldn't sign. He said he would be willing, as he did with immigration. So you take it with a grain of salt. He right. said he'd be willing to sign stuff that was. A lot more extensive than what Republicans have ever supported. Um, but then it seems to have come to somewhat of a halt. Right. Well, I think part of the problem for Republican leaders right now is they don't know exactly where the president stands. So they don't want to move forward with with anything um, too you know comprehensive or too controversial until they get an exact sense of where he stands. Because, as you mentioned, it seems to change every day and depending on the audience that he has. Uh, you know, one day he has you know, Democratic senators that he, he's sitting with and he seems to be agreeing with everything they're saying. But then, you know, he's meeting with, you know, the NRA officials or Republicans behind closed doors. They come out of those meetings saying, oh, no, he's actually with us on this. Um, you know, and t- nothing ha- has been scheduled yet in terms of a vote. Um, you know, I, I you know, I think at the bare minimum, something could be done in, in terms of, of strengthening the current background check system. That bill that uh, John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, and Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, have introduced. That's something that the NRA seems to be comfortable with. It's something the president himself seems to be comfortable with. But anything beyond that, you know, whether it's actually expanding the right. background check system, which is what Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin want to do, and, you know, all the way to, you know, raising raising the, the age limit on certain weapons or an all you know, a, a total assault weapons ban. I, you know, I doubt we'll see any movement on that. But I think at the very least, you could see something happen on, on background checks Right. Here. And I believe that you mentioned fixed NICs, um, you correctly point out, does not in, impose new background checks. Right. It does not close the loopholes for private sales, family transfers, and gun shows. It tries to bolster reporting into the existing background check system, um, putting more onus on both state uh, officials and, and others to to provide more accurate reporting. Um, but uh, would that not be then somewhat symbolic? Um, I mean, do you do because, you, you, you know, you know, we, we started this conversation by in after Sandy Hook with universal background checks, which was the mansion to me bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I guess the question I'd ra- I'm asking is is less about whether or not we would see Mansion Tooney be resurrected because it seems like that's quite clearly it won't be. Right. Um, but with the president having signaled that, as much as he does change depending on who he's talking to, having signaled support for some more expansive measures that have at least been discussed in Lake of Parkland, such as New Age restrictions 
and maybe revisiting some degree, some expanded background checks. Um, does that not strengthen the argument that Democrats might make that the president himself, the leader of your party to Republicans, is calling for some of these measures? So how can you say that they're not uh, that they would not resolve the, the issue? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a really good point, and I think you know Republicans will just point to the fact that the president is sort of changing changing his his views seemingly every day, and you know I think Republicans could also in some way sort of turn this argument on Democrats in a way in saying that sure you know the more the most liberal members of your party are pushing for some of these very strict gun control measures, but but talk to some of those red state Democrats who are up in in 2018. You know, is John Tester? Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, Claire McCaskill, are they really going to want to vote for more gun restrictions going into mm-hmm. re-election in a state that Trump, you know, in some some cases, Trump carried by by double digits? And, you know, obviously they're going to need, you know, they may own guns themselves and they are going to need a lot of those gun owners on their side come come this fall. So, you know, it's not even just that, you know, I, you know, clearly, you know, it's been Republicans who have been very hesitant um, to do anything on in, in terms of restricting um, access to guns or expanding background checks, but um, but but it's also I think you know some of those red state Democrats. You, you combine that, it's just really tough to see any way you know you get sixty votes for anything on this in the Senate. Right I, I, now. I, I love how we're like this far away from the shooting, right? And yesterday at the right. press briefing, Sarah Huckabee Sanders just said like we're continuing an ongoing discussion about guns. We're going to continue some of the discussions that have been ongoing, continue to engage with Congress uh, as we lay out some more details of what we'd like to see. So that stood out to me because, like, there are a lot of parallels that we could draw to, like, the immigration debate, right? Like, Trump just sort of agreeing to anything that that, that came across his desk. Because at that gun meeting, he just agreed and was saying things that was... I haven't heard any progressive candidate say anything as progressive as what Donald Trump was saying <laughs> about right. guns, right? But to get back to the immigration debate, um, it was a fundamental sort of lack of understanding or lack of direction or lack of leadership, whichever, right? I'm not really sure what it was that Donald Trump exhibited there, right? Because it wasn't the Democrats who were saying, like, work with us. We need some direction here. We want to work with you on this. It was Republicans that had to come out and say, Mr. President, we don't know where you stand on this. We want to try and, and like it or not, Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. And so, like, I don't think he really has much of a clear view on where he wants to go with guns. I mean, we know where he stood on it before he was president, as he wrote in his book, but and we know that we like, like what he said at this roundtable, which was pretty strong gun control. And so, like now, what? Like, how is he going to deal with the Republicans? Right, and yeah, and yeah, and, and Republicans in Congress to, to do anything on these really tricky and controversial issues, they're going to want cover from from the president right. on this to, to, to do anything. So it's sort of like they're they're both waiting for each other, I think, to almost take take the next step on these. Well, on I think these because issues. because we discussed some of the parallels um, with immigration. I mean, you'll call that in that similarly televised meeting he held with lawmakers on immigration, he said to Senator Dianne Feinstein, you know, sure, why don't we do a clean DACA bill where we just mm-hmm. extend enshrine protections for dreamers into law and and then we can do border security. So actually decoupling those issues. And he had to be corrected by Kevin McCarthy, the number two Republican in the House, and who said, no, 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 you know, she she's saying that, that effectively means just fixing DACA and doing nothing else. 
oh, we want to pair this with border security. And so he had to be like walked back in part because he doesn't really show much interesting for the nuances. But then I also think in terms of providing cover after indicating he would support um, a path to citizenship for dreamers and actually going beyond DACA, he in his plan, his framework, said that that would have to be paired with all of these very restrictive immigration measures such as scaling back legal immigration, you know, what he calls ending chain migration and uh, cracking, ending the visa lottery program. So I do wonder if with guns, he might try to also have it both ways and say, let's do universal background checks and let's raise the age limit, but let's also have concealed carry reciprocity, which some of the House is trying to do, mm-hmm. which lets gun holders who have a concealed carry permit, permit in, in their states take that take their firearms across state lines, even where they don't have those permits. I mean, I, I don't know if that might be the way that they get some sort of cover by having it both ways. Right. And then, but yeah, then, then I guess, yeah, the, the flip side of that is you, you, when, you know, whenever with obviously with these complex pieces of legislation, the more you tack on, the harder it gets exactly. to, to, you know, you end up pleasing nobody. You know, if you say, OK, well, I'll give you this on, on one side, but then you're going to have to give up this on the other side. Much like with immigration. Right. You just end up alienating both the right and the left. And there isn't mu- enough yeah. left in the middle to pass anything. And it means that they're, they're, there's no resolution and then it just devolves into the partisan blame game. Yes. Which yes. I think is very much what you would see in midterms is then Trump will just say it's the Democrats who stopped, you know, background checks from from reaching my desk because they wouldn't support this other piece of it. They were saying all or nothing. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what they're trying to do with immigration, say that, you know, they're the ones who are. And he said a few times they're the ones who don't care about the dreamers. I put out a plan. Now, obviously, you have to. That that's operating on an assumption that a lot of people are paying attention to what his plan actually entailed and, and what the broader public's view is on some of these issues, such as immigration. On guns, at least, we know 90% of the public supports universal background checks, and there's this mm-hmm. movement now with these students. Um, so I think if that is something that they sustain at the grassroots level, maybe it has some ramifications uh, for midterms. Uh, but when we talk about midterms, when we talk about the state of um, uh, Congress, uh, some other major news that came uh, this week was the resignation of Thad Cochran from the Senate. Um, and so what does that mean for the state of Mississippi? Well, so it means for starters, they're going to have uh, two, two Senate seats up in, in, in 2018 here. Roger Wicker, uh, the other senator, was already facing reelection this fall. So now uh, so Cochran, his resignation is going to be effective April 1st. Uh, the governor is going to appoint someone to uh, to fill that seat until November, so it'll be a special election, but it'll still be held the same time as the as the regularly scheduled elections in November. So, so I guess, you know, the big next thing to watch, I guess, is is going to be what uh, what Chris McDaniel does, the the former state senator there. Um, as listeners may remember, he ran against Thad Cochran back in 2014 in a very uh, a, ugly yes. primary. And if if I remember correctly, still has not conceded that race technically. Okay. So, <laughs> will, will that affect him at all as he as he tries to run for that seat again? Who knows? But has so, Roy Moore conceded? I was right. Roy Moore hasn't conceded. This is so yeah. Situation. Oh, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> but it'll concede. be but. It's it's, it's kind of interesting, and a lot of people are speculating the reason that Cochran waited to announce this decision until this week was because the filing deadline for that Wicker race was March 1st. So he kind of forced Chris McDaniel's hand because he was he, clearly he was waiting to, to kind of see is that Cochran going to going to resign? Everyone had kind of expected this was going to be coming sooner or later. Um, so he was kind of biding his time, seeing which Senate seat to run for. He had to officially file for that Wicker seat. But uh, but but now that that Cochran uh, has resigned, he he could ultimately drop out of that race, he, so he wouldn't have to challenge a sitting Republican senator and could run for this for this open seat. Um, but uh, but yeah, but and, and with Mississippi too, you know, people, uh, you know, 
after a Doug Jones's big victory in Alabama. I mean, you know, Mississippi technically slightly less Republican than Alabama, so it's not you know you know especially if someone like Chris McDaniel is the nominee, it's not totally out of the question that uh, Democrats could could make some noise there. Yes, and Thad Cochran, of course, at eighty years of age, he had long-standing health issues, and so. As you know, uh, this was expected, and he had increasingly begun to miss votes mm-hmm. um, due to his ailments, not been able to be in Washington. Um, but you also point out that one thing that we've seen is the emergence of more candidates who were once on the fringe, like Roy Moore or like Chris McDaniels, who are now somewhat part of the mainstream because you have someone like Trump, who is a standard bearer of the party and a lot of these people have been emboldened by him um, because they pulled Republicans into a position that um, was not reflective of the the Republican orthodoxy. I mean, they all said about Trump themselves on record that they didn't want him to be the nominee and he was Mm -hmm. not he did not speak on behalf of the Republican Party. He is now officially the spokesman of the Republican Party. How many more of these uh, contested primaries are we seeing? Um, You know, and 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 have you Steve Bannon has sort of fallen from grace but the, there, there was that lingering um, civil war where you had Bannon, who initially was trying to orchestrate this takeover of what he called still the establishment uh, that prevails in Washington. Right. Well, you know, j- just due to kind of the way the map has shaken out this year, there, there just aren't that many uh, Republican incumbent senators running for reelection. So, so there's only so many re- opportunities for someone to, you know, conservative insurgent candidate to sort of to take on uh, Senator Roger Wicker, you know, Chris McDaniel. That was one that was a possibility. We'll see if, if McDaniel uh, decides to stick with that race or goes for the open Cochran seat. Um, you know, you have, you know, John Barrasso in Wyoming, someone that a couple uh, of conservative candidates have taken a look at challenging him. Nothing's really form there. But but there are a lot of these open primaries, of course, to take on uh, so many of these Democratic senators that are running for uh, for reelection. So, you know, and Steve Bannon, as you mentioned, endorsed a lot of these candidates last fall. Now he's sort of out of the picture. So it's unclear exactly what role he'll play. You know, I think of example for a primary in Wisconsin where you have two main candidates there. You have Kevin Nicholson, sort of this out, outsider, has never run for office before. Steve Bannon endorsed him. He's running and he's running against a longtime state senator there. And they're both trying to take on Tammy Baldwin. At the time, it looked like it was a big get for for someone like Nicholson to to get that Bannon endorsement. Now, I don't know if, if you know, if that's going to backfire on him, how much he's, he's going to play that up. Uh, but, but you're definitely going to, you know, whether or not Bannon is involved or not, you're still going to see in a number of these primaries the, the, a similar divide we've seen. In, in recent cycles, you have having one of these more establishment friendly candidates against someone who's more uh, on the insurgent side of things. Yes. And you never know. I mean, you mentioned the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker's approval ratings, oddly enough, split in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, as always. A Same lot, as always. Yeah. Lot, yeah, believe it or not. Um, but like, it's always a fascinating state to watch uh, where, you know, as you, as you know, this, if anything has come in this period of, of, um, Trump is the unexpected. And so I was curious if you, what you have seen is some of the emerging issues that really you think that you think will define the midterms. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is a reflection of an incumbent president, but not not necessarily a referendum on the president alone. But that's what Democrats appear to want the election to be. Is that going to be sufficient? Uh, and what are some of the issues that increasingly appear to be on the minds of voters as they think about heading toward the polls? Yeah, it, certainly, you know, President Trump is going to be playing an outsized role in these midterms, and Democrats are certainly going to make make sure of that fact, uh, given, you know, particularly in states where his, his approval rating is is underwater. Um, you know, especially in these midterms, you know, it's it's a lot about just what the, the national environment looks like, and especially in a president's 
uh, first term, as as we as we well know historically, you know, you know, the party that that's in power doesn't do so hot in in the midterms. In terms of issues, you know, I think it's going to depend. Uh, you know, sort of race to race. Certainly, Republicans are are going to try and run on their their tax bill. I think as much as popular, it's sort of increasingly getting 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 more popular. And it's, I mean, still, especially for for the incumbents, it's the one main legislative achievement they can they can point Thank to. Um, and you know, and as for the Democrats, you know, yeah, you know, it will be interesting to see what they choose to to, to champion outside of just saying, well, you know, we're not President Trump. We're going to oppose President Trump. You know, you take a look, for example, you know, the primaries in, in Texas tonight and. Uh, there was there's been a lot of um, attention paid to the race in the seventh district where the DCCC kind of intervened in, in a in a multi candidate Democratic primary because they were worried that one of the candidates was too liberal. You know she you know she's mm. endorsing uh, single payer health care. She's far to the left on, on a lot of these issues. Maybe running as more of a Bernie Sanders style candidate rather than you know some you know maybe Hillary Clinton just for a 2016 uh, parallel, but. I think, you know, th- that's what's going to be the Democratic primary is going to be, you know, just as if not more interesting to watch than the Republican ones coming up here. Are, you know, are, are candidates going to decide in these in, in a district like Texas seven that is going to be uh, hotly contested by both parties in the fall, one that Hillary Clinton bar- barely carried. But there's a Republican congressman sitting there. Do they decide to nominate a candidate who who is pretty far to the left and is going to run on you know liberal issues like single payer health care, you know, banning assault weapons or do they just try and go with somebody a little more middle of the road who isn't going to be necessarily a favorite of the liberal activists, but could really has a good chance to put some of these competitive seats in play and ultimately flip the House in, in 2018 for the Democrats? It is interesting because there is still this uh, struggle between these the, the wings within the Democratic Party, as you know, and it's not that they are necessarily as divided on some of these core issues as Republicans where, you know, on, on something like immigration, um, you have such a disparate view among Republicans with respect to, you know, people who see anything as amnesty versus people who want to the benefits of immigration for the economy and want to try and have some sort of resolution on dreamers and undocumented immigrants. For Democrats, I mean, sometimes we're talking about the difference between 11 and a $15 minimum wage. And as you know, right. you know, okay, we have Obamacare to be... To, how you know where do we go from here on health care you know it's single payer what is the litmus test for democrats here on on health care you know it's the, i think it's really going to vary uh you know district to district race to race uh you know just depending on you know just kind of the makeup of of you know how evenly split that district is from a partisan standpoint and just sort of who turns out in these primaries um it is interesting because it, you know, if you look ahead to the next election cycle, for instance, 2020, you know, all of these Democrats who are sort of positioning themselves to maybe run for president, they're all staking out a pretty far opposition to the left on, on health care. Right. It seems like almost, you know, you have to probably be in favor of at least some sort of Medicare for all if you're going to run for president in 2020. So it'll be interesting to see if that dynamic also plays out in, in the in the midterms. And clearly there are a lot more Democrats today than even a couple of years ago that are willing to advocate for that. You know, and going back to Wisconsin, I thought it was interesting uh, that, you know, Tammy Baldwin, she's going to have a very competitive reelection race, but she was uh, the only Trump state Democrat to endorse Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill that he introduced a few months back. So I, I think it really is going to just vary candidate to candidate, race to race. But ult- but but ultimately, I do think, um, you know, more and more Democrats are going to stake out a position further to, to the left on health care than they have in, in recent cycles. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, that's Trump himself was seen as somewhat of a populist candidate in some ways. Um, except not having necessarily put any policy proposals behind the rhetoric mm-hmm. uh, when he was talking about appealing to working class Americans and trying to close uh, the wage gap. Uh, he didn't ha- necessarily have any any uh, ag- economic agenda that he had put out in the course of the campaign. 
uh, beyond making America great again. But I think in some ways, maybe there's a recognition that there are more and more Americans who don't necessarily see some of these proposals as, as quote unquote socialism, but they actually see this as the way that this country should or the direction in which this country should move. Um, as opposed to the current system that's been in place that just isn't working for a significant faction of Americans. Um, but, but Adam, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming in. I know that there's no shortage of issues no. to talk about, and you've <laughs> breezed through everything from Russia to retirements to guns to immigration. So you're, you're a good sport. We, we enjoy having you here. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter at Adam Mulder and read his work, of course, at the National Journal. Uh, we'll be taking a break, but stay with us, and we'll be back shortly. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Uh, it's been another morning with lots to dissect here in Washington, and we're going to get right back into it with Scott Wong, who is a senior reporter at The Hill. Uh, good morning, Scott. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Sabrina. Yeah, we're ha- I'm happy to be here. I haven't seen you in, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were just noting since you had. We still have two little ones, but yeah. one of them is already like two years. Like yeah, a toddler they're, run, now. they're running around the house. They're very active, uh, very active girls. Very active girls. Um, not active is Congress. <laughs> I can't think we could say. <laughs> what a segue. Well, you're a professional. Very Sabrina. professional. It's not my first rodeo here, uh, but but because you you know you're someone who who covers a lot of the action on the Hill or inaction in some cases, and uh, you've been covering a host of issues and as well as some of the dynamics uh, within among both parties and leadership there. Um, you know, last week, all of the talk, or not just last week, week before, but certainly last week when Congress returned from week-long recess, all eyes were on gun control uh, in the aftermath of the Parkland High School shooting. And uh, this what appeared to be mo- more of a moment of reckoning than some of the previous mass shootings uh, produced. And the president convening this meeting... Uh, with a bipartisan group of senators, right. um, talk about background checks, raising the age restrictions for purchasing, purchasing firearms, some sort of high-capacity magazine limit, maybe. And then what happened? Well, then the political reality hit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you did see President Trump convene this very interesting meeting. And, and I, we love these televised meetings because you could see all the dynamics at play. And Trump was throwing all these ideas out there saying, you know, we need a big comprehensive bill. Let's go bigger than Manchin to me. Let's load this thing up with all the, you know, everything. And you could see Diane Feinstein in the corner sort of rubbing her hands together and, and really giddy at the prospects that maybe maybe something had changed. And I think uh, it to a lot of us, it did sort of feel like something had changed when you had all these uh, students from the Florida high school going out on TV Uh, on social media, advocating their causes, pushing back against the NRA, pushing back against lawmakers, really calling them out. And it did sort of feel like something was different here. But then, as I mentioned before, the political reality hit. Mitch McConnell did not turn to a guns bill this week. He turned to a Dodd-Frank banking reform bill, and it, it really sucked all the oxygen out of the air right away. I, and I think that it's interesting because you have a president who, you know, not only has the party that controls both chambers of Congress, but also the White House, who, who but in this case, was breaking with longstanding party orthodoxy on some of these issues. Now, with Trump, we've seen this before. He effectively takes the last position 
uh, of, from, he takes the position of the last person he talked to, yeah. and then we'll you know shift back toward you know so, something that is more appealing to his base. But he he did at least enter, he has entertained some of these measures. Um, and so is it that he hasn't put much political capital behind it that he's not really demanding? Uh, that there be a bill on his desk. Uh, you, you, that I, I think people people would have expected that there would might at least be a debate and maybe a vote, even if it it doesn't actually result in any form of legislation. Well, I won't say that Congress will do nothing mm-hmm. yet. Um, you know, I don't think we're quite at that stage because there's still a lot of bipartisan talks happening in in the Capitol. Uh, you know, just yesterday, Toomey and Chris Coons rolled out another gun proposal. Uh, having to do with, um, you know, I think, what do they call it? They call it the, the lie, uh, I, for, I forgot the name of it. Oh, lie and try bill, where state law enforcement would be notified every time uh, somebody tries to purchase a gun and is denied based on their background checks. So mm. there are still, there's still a lot of bipartisan activity. I think for Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell and Speaker Ryan, I think they're sort of waiting to see what Trump does next because it was a big bipartisan breakthrough last week. But where's the follow through? And as we know from watching Trump, you know, over this past year that he often gets distracted by other issues. I mean, he's already distracted with this tariffs issue. Right. right. So it's almost like Washington. The news cycle is moving so quickly. the, The news cycle has shifted from guns to tariffs and, you know, to other issues, to Russia mm. in, in a matter of days. And so I think Republicans on Capitol Hill are waiting to see whether Trump is serious about these gun ideas or whether he's simply going to get distracted and move on to other things. And I think Republicans will be perfectly happy with that. And that's what happened with immigration in some ways. Uh, now, you know, there was obviously a hard deadline at 1st of March 5th that that Trump himself had imposed um, for Congress to replace DACA, the Deferred Actions for Childhood Arrivals policy under Obama. He similarly had that big televised meeting soliciting ideas, signaled he'd be open to uh, you know uh, proposals that he had previously opposed with respect to Pathway to Citizenship for Dreamers, then put out a plan that was effectively non-starter with Democrats because it also wanted to scale back legal immigration, and and the visa lottery program and kind of included a bit of a conservative wish list, but then saying we'll give you you know protections for dreamers and um, that's a sort of a negotiating trick. Um, now, by the way, if I could if I could just interrupt on the DACA stuff really quickly because Donald Trump did tweet about it uh, this morning. Uh, uh. He tweeted he has a couple of tweets this morning. <laughs> Uh, total inaction on DACA by Dems. Where are you? A deal can be made. Last night, well, not last night, this was yesterday afternoon, uh, it's March 5th and the Democrats are nowhere to be found on DACA. Gave them six months, they just don't care. Where are they? We're ready to make a deal. And then about 15 minutes ago, Donald Trump tweeted, as we mentioned earlier in the show, um, the Oscars were Sunday night. Donald Trump tweets, lowest rated Oscars in history, all caps. (laughs) Problem is, we don't have stars anymore. Except your president, parentheses, just kidding, of course. I don't even know anymore if these are parody tweets or real tweets. This is a real tweet. I know it is, but it's so hard. It's a real tweet. (laughs) And by the way, you can tell that the one about the Oscars was what there's there's a whole methodology to figure out whether it was written by Donald Trump himself or by Dan Scavino. The Oscars one looks to be 
purely Trump. And the thing is, um, it, you have to look at the capitalizations. They're yeah. a weird capital. Like, like he capitalized stars. We don't have stars anymore. Mm. Stars is capitalized. Uh, the punctuation, there's a problem. There's an exclamation mark outside of the parentheses, which that's classic Donald Trump. Uh, and then the capitalization of history. History. So, right. just wanted to let you know what he was up to this morning amid yeah. all of the other things we have going on. Is this, is this part of executive time? Or this is executive it? time <laughs> well, that we have no stars anymore except for him. But this kind of goes back to what I was saying about, you know, part of the tactic by the White House was to put out a framework that they knew would be a non-starter with Democrats, but that enables them to kind of have it both ways and say, hey, we were saying we'll give not just DACA recipients a pathway to citizenship, but go beyond and offer it to, you know, roughly a million more people who would have been eligible for the program, but just weren't, were not part of it. Yeah. Um, knowing that now it's just going to be a he said, she said, or, you know, where both parties are just going to blame the other for for seeking all or nothing. Um, but I was curious because, you know, the court, obviously, the Supreme Court uh, not has not ruled on DACA, but in essence enabled a lower court order to go in place that that prevented the Trump administration from um, rescinding these protections and at least in the interim period. So that so now you have Republicans saying there's no real deadline. There's no real pressure. Everything's fine. Um, but is first of all, is that really the case? And are you hearing there, there are a fair amount of Republicans who are sympathetic to Dreamers. I mean, are, is there no longer any talk about about replacing DACA through legislation? Uh, just because you've had you know a temporary order from the court, that doesn't mean that there's that that there's been a solution to DACA in the long term. Well, for <clears throat> to your first point, I think there still is a lot of concerns, especially if you are one of those DACA kids. You're very concerned about your future. You don't. Yeah. You're sort of hanging in limbo. You you don't know what what the future holds. You don't know when, you know, somebody's going to bust through your door and, and scoop you up and deport you out of the country. Uh, you don't feel great about the current situation right now, even though the courts have stepped in and said, you know, these these people cannot be deported. This, this issue is still unresolved. And so, you know, on your second point, <clears throat> I think Republicans feel like, um, you know, they, they don't need to act at this point. Um, I, you know, again, I won't say that they will do nothing this year because I don't think we absolutely know f for sure. But I think you, you know, you're probably safe to say that uh, this is going to be an issue that continues on through the election that Republicans probably won't act. It just puts too many of their members in a tough position during an election year. And as, as you've covered election years in the past midterms and presidential years, you know, as you march closer and closer to that election day, action on Capitol Hill start, starts to slow down. And you're really starting to feel that Already. at the moment, you know, especially on guns and immigration, but also on things like infrastructure. I mean, <laughs> Trump, you know, at the beginning of the year, Trump rolled out this trillion dollar infrastructure plan. And just last week, John Cornyn said, you know what, I don't know if we have time enough to get to infrastructure this year. Well, the question is, what, what else are, are, what else are you doing? <laughs> is Congress doing from now until November? There's 14 weeks, we counted, of yeah. recess uh, weeks where Congress will be back home in the districts, probably campaigning. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that sort of shows where the priorities lie. They also 
jam through a tax bill within a matter of weeks. So it's not that they necessarily need a lot of time to debate these issues. They, if it's something that they support, right. then they seem willing to just you know work behind the scenes, produce a bill really quickly, have a very very limited debate, and and that way they can you know I mean in that case they wanted to be able to point to some sort of legislative accomplishment. Um, obviously you know they wasted a lot of time trying to repeal and replace Obamacare. Spent you know the first six months of the last year, seven months almost trying to trying to do something that I think on some level they knew was not going to be feasible, and and they they just had to you know have that moment of reckoning with their base. But um, as well, you know, you, it's not as, as you know if they want to do something, they can. Yes, yes. yeah, that, <laughs> they showed that last year. They can push something through very quickly. Uh, there's a there's a divide in the party right now. Between, I think, conservatives that are clamoring for more action. Uh, Mark Meadows does want to do an infrastructure bill. The chairman of the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and leadership is saying, well, slow down. You know, sometimes tackling these issues uh, puts a lot of our members in a, in a tough position during an election year. Yes. And, I, you know, when you, when you talk about some of these divisions within um, the Republican conference, uh, it also comes to the speculation over what leadership uh, might look like after the midterms, even in the near future. I mean, right. just a, just a month or two ago, Paul Ryan had to again bat down the notion that he was stepping, going to step down as, as speaker. But there's also been a longstanding view that this is not a job that he enjoys. It's certainly one that he reluctantly took on and that not one that he intends to keep. Um, you've written a little bit about Kevin McCarthy potentially moving up the ranks. That is, of course, the number two uh, Republican in the House, who was actually so initially be was seen as the one who would replace John Boehner. That's right. Although there was a fair amount of scandal behind the, in, in in that that and, and other issues that that prevent, that barred him from ultimately doing so. So what's changed um, between then and now? Why why do you feel that McCarthy's star might be rising? Well, I, t- I talked to a lot of Republicans uh, over the past week who said, I said, you know, what happens in the event that the way things are looking, the House could flip. <clears throat> um, everyone believes if the House flipped, Speaker Ryan would be out. He would leave Congress. He wouldn't pull a Nancy Pelosi and try to cling to power. <laughs> and so he would leave Congress entirely he would or leave Congress entirely. Oh, yeah. so and, it wouldn't and, just be that he would go back to, to, to you know, being, and I know you, it's not common for people to just go back to being a rank and file, but you know. Yeah, would, I don't. Would, I don't think just Ryan re- loves <laughs> this job enough. I mean, he's been here for twenty, yeah. twenty years. Well, like and, just to, just to park on the the Paul Ryan part of this for just a uh-huh. second, right? Like Paul Ryan has a what looks to be a fairly tough reelection fight against Iron Stash, right? And like, believe what you want, right? But some of the polling that's come out of Randy Bryce's campaign shows that like he has a considerable edge over Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan is a guy who, I mean, look, a lot of these there are a lot of these people that, that that work up on the hill, but Paul Ryan wants to be president one day. And if they lose the majority, I mean, where does he go from there? I, I you know, I think you're right. I think he just goes away. He just so 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 <laughs> so I mean, it's true. I mean, if you if if especially I think given um you know what the implications would be for the Republican Party if this were, in fact, some sort of wave election. Let's just say then, operating under um, that pretense that okay, so then Paul Ryan leaves. So you you were saying then this is where Kevin McCarthy comes in, right? Republicans would be in the minority, and who 
is most likely to rise up to Republican leader. Uh, I talked to a lot of Republicans who say it's Kevin McCarthy, even though three years ago, 2015, in the wake of the Boehner resignation, uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to go for the speakership uh, and simply either did not have the 218 votes needed or had them and realized it was going to be an impossible situation for him to govern with the Freedom Caucus constantly agitating. So you ask, what's changed? What's changed is the fact that in the minority leader race only requires half of the Republican conference, unlike the speaker's race, right. which requires 218, a much higher threshold. threshold. So it's something yeah. like you could win the minority leader race with, you know, a hundred and something votes, mm -hmm. which is pretty easy to do if you're Kevin McCarthy and you're probably Donald Trump's top ally on Capitol Hill. Uh, you can be sure that Donald Trump's going to be making some phone calls. If McCarthy is his preferred candidate, uh, you can be sure that Donald Trump's going to back him and, and uh, be making some phone calls on his behalf. And he has ha he has been a fairly close ally of the president's. Um, you know, like many, he, he was critical during the campaign. But you've seen with both Paul Ryan, who is much more critical than <clears throat> Kevin McCarthy was during the period of the campaign, yeah. uh, that they've just you know, determined that it's in their interest to to not uh, be on the wrong side of the president for varying reasons, everything from wanting his signature on their legislative priorities to trying to retain their majority and knowing that this is a president who would who's willing to go after members of his own party if right. if he if they offend him um, <laughs> and his sensibilities. But I think um, when you note that there as it would be obviously uh, a lower threshold to meet. To be the minority leader, does that not give one of the Freedom Caucus types who have tried in the past to make very unlikely bids for the speakership to have a better shot uh, at taking, um, you know, not either taking control of leadership or, or rising in the ranks in a way that could have very profound implications for how they shape policy, given the very, very uh, the often stark differences between the demands of the Freedom Caucus and where Republican leaders want to go. Yeah, I think that's right. If <clears throat> if uh, Kevin McCarthy is, uh, you know, the leading contender for minority leader, I think we almost surely will see some kind of challenge from the right, whether that's Mark Meadows and the Freedom Caucus or Mark Walker from the RSC, the Republican Study Committee, the other conservative caucus uh, on the Hill. Um you know, I think that's that is a very likely scenario that we'll see uh, it come down to, to McCarthy and a more conservative candidate. McCarthy is, is fairly conservative, but he also hails from California, blue state, California. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting. And, and I will say, you know, another scenario we have to look at is what happens if Republicans hold the majority, but only by five votes or so, five seats. Uh, that becomes very perilous for McCarthy, who has a track record of not being able to get to 218 votes on the floor. That's what you need to become speaker. And so what happens then? Um, you know, there's you, you could game it out a bunch of different ways. Uh, some of the lawmakers I spoke to said, well, in that case, maybe it's Scalise who leapfrogs McCarthy and becomes the next Speaker of the House. Scalise, obviously, who was nearly fatally shot in the congressional baseball shooting last year in Alexandria, uh, has has really received a, a hero's welcome when he came back to Capitol Hill, has a lot of 
um, you know, goodwill towards him right now mm-hmm. is, is very popular on, on in Congress. And so he's somebody else that we need to continue to watch. There's another scenario where they throw all the bums out and, you know, go for an entirely new leadership team. How worried are Republicans in Congress about uh, the Trump effect in these midterms? Democrats clearly want this election to be a referendum on the president. And that's not un- unusual. I mean, in, in 2014 and in 2010, of course, Republicans try made those elections very much a referendum on Obama, but that had more to do with very disparate views on policy. In 2010, it was Obamacare, and in 2014, it had it was everything from Keystone to guns to national security and how, how to combat terrorism. I mean, there's so so here it has a lot more to do with um, a president who has historically low approval ratings, but a lot of that has less to do with any you know real coherence in policy but hit him himself and so i was wondering you know republicans who have very much overall they have they have wild, widely embraced this president and decided to just put their eggs in this basket that you know there's more to be it seems that there's more risk in igniting the fury of the base um than trying to really right. you know run their own parallel campaign but is inside you know the hallways of capitol hill what's the mood like I think if you're somebody like Speaker Ryan, you realize that you can't control what Donald Trump's going to do, right? He's going to tweet what he wants to tweet. He's going to tweet about the Oscars. He's going to tweet other (laughs) controversies. Uh, There's very little that they can do to control that. So what they can control is is sort of the message from Capitol Hill. And they're 100% focused on tax reform. If they could talk about nothing else, it would be tax reform. And Speaker Ryan's going to be going down to uh, a Home Depot facility in Atlanta later this week. He's going to talk about what else? Tax reform. Um, the one challenge, of course, is, you know, are things like this tariffs proposal on, mm. on steel and aluminum where it intersects with policy. It's not just, you know, Trump and the Russia situation. It actually is intersects with policy and Republicans are having to weigh in. And, and we've seen probably the strongest pushback, pushback. I think, from congressional Republicans to Donald Trump that we've seen in the past year, they simply think this is the wrong approach and, and actually something that could undermine, uh, you know, their tax message uh, and, and their talk of, of, of really positive economy. I mean, is it, would they go so far as seeking to reverse it themselves if he doesn't walk back from, from what he laid out last week, which he has suggested he, he may do. I yeah, mean, he if, said if they it's not a final decision. NAFTA, then he said he would revisit not that that's an easy task, um, but but how far do you think they'd be willing to go? We have heard some chatter that that some members are willing to to do you know go the legislative approach and try mm-hmm. to curb yep. the president's powers on on tariffs. But I think by and large, uh, you know, I think Republicans know that would invite the wrath of Donald Trump, and they don't necessarily want to go there. So I think once again, just like on. On the guns issue, they're hoping that Trump, you know, moves on, moves on to something else and gets distracted and, and perhaps forgets about this whole thing. But um, right now, it seems this thing's really this thing's marching forward. It is uh, very much so. Any other issues to watch for in Congress this week? Uh, you mentioned Dodd-Frank. What else are they up to? Um, you know, the, re- the reason why McConnell brought Dodd-Frank to the floor is because 
uh, it's an issue that divides Democrats. I yeah. mean, you have the, the, the Elizabeth, Bernie, the Bernie Elizabeth Warren wing, exactly, and you know, and and the more mod versus the more moderates who are willing to support this. This this bill's going to pass. I mean, McConnell is is a brilliant um, political tactician, and and so he knew that this was an issue that was going to divide Democrats rather than the gun issue, which would have divided Republicans. Yeah, certainly, and that kind of harkens back to 2014 when there were similarly a number of votes that put red state Democrats in a difficult position. Uh, this was actually still when Harry Reid, of course, still had control of the Senate, but right. those try on issues like the Keystone pipeline and some, and even some of the um, lingering effects of the debate over guns. I think this was, this was very much part of the conversation then too, except now you have a president who is willing to sign a lot of these bills that red state Democrats align, have aligned with Republicans on. Uh, so it'll certainly be a fascinating, I think, a few months, especially as we get closer and closer to elections. It's anyone's guess. I'm out of the prediction business. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. After last, after 2016, I'm, yeah. I'm done with predictions. <laughs> yeah, no more predictions. <laughs> but thank you so much, Scott Wong, for joining yeah, us great this to be morning here. again. Don't forget to read his work uh, uh, at The Hill and follow him at Scott Wong DC on Twitter. We've had a fantastic time with you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. To the Bill Press Show, we'll, of course, be back with you tomorrow. So keep watching, keep listening, and keep on following us. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah. I have smelled alcohol on your breath. This is the Bill Press Show.